Sometimes you hear a person boast about an achievement to someone who you think will not really care about that achievement. So why on earth are they telling them? It's not going to impress them. If you take a look in this week's parasha, at the beginning of the parasha, we have the reunion of Yaakov and his wayward brother Asaph. This is 20 odd years after they had last seen each other. And they had parted on pretty unhealthy terms. That was after the story of Yaakov getting the blessings that Esav had expected to get from his father Yitzchak. That's after Esav had sworn to himself that at the next available opportunity he would kill his brother. And here they are, they're coming to reunite. There's a lot of issues that they have to resolve. And Yaakov sends a message to his brother. He wants to know what's he up against, how are they going to meet, what's his brother's headspace. And he sends this message to him to say, listen... Im Lovon Garity. For the last 20 odd years, I've lived with my father in law, who is also our mutual uncle, Lavan. Now, anybody who knows who Lavan was will know that Lavan was a dishonest man and the antithesis of anything spiritual or holy. So Yaakov sends this message to Asaph Listen, I've lived with Lavan for all of these years. The word that he uses is Garity. I have dwelt. Rashi, who is the foremost commentator on the scriptures, immediately points out that that word, Garati, has the numerical value of 613. So, Yaakov's message to his brother is, in spite of the fact that I lived with such horrible company and in such a decadent place, I managed to remain committed to my values, the 613 commandments of the Torah. And even though the Torah had not yet been given, we do know that Abraham had educated his family to keep the values and the principles and the rituals of the Torah even in advance. So now why would that impress Asav? Asav is a hunter. Asav is a murderer. Asav is a person whose complete focus is on materialism and building up his own personal wealth and success. Why on earth would it impress him to hear that Yaakov says, look, I went into a hostile environment and I came back pristine and pious. You can just imagine Asav giving a slow clap when he hears that. So what was Yaakov's intention? It's quite fascinating because you do know that the two characters of Yaakov and Asav are not just about the individual personalities, but they represent two worldviews that clash. When they were still in utero, the prophet told their mother Rivka that these will be two nations who will struggle with each other till the end of time. The two worldviews, one, Asav's, which says the entire purpose of life is eat, drink and be merry, accumulate wealth, become successful, make a name for yourself, conquer the world, because that's the, all that there is. Versus the other worldview of Yaakov, which says there's a sense of higher purpose. So use the world as a catalyst for growth, for transcendence, for spirituality, for connection to God. And that's the battle that rages internally within each of us and externally within the incredibly different worldviews that have dominated society for all of history. And Yaakov is 100% convinced that one day Asav will wake up and realize that everything that he's pursued is actually transient and there's a greater value to life. Yaakov believes after 20 years of living in Lavan's home and of learning how to take the physical materialistic world and turn it around, how to raise a family that has good values in a hostile environment, he's pretty convinced that even a rogue like Asav can be touched and inspired. And that's his message to him. He says, 
Look, I did it. I lived in an environment that was not hospitable and I still managed to find spiritual value. Asaph, I have confidence in you that you can find spiritual value too. It's a little premature. Asaph doesn't exactly come around at that point in time. He does get to the point of forgiving and embracing his brother. But the ultimate turnaround is on hold until Mashiach comes when even the Asaphs of the world will see the value of keeping mitzvahs here in the materialistic plane. There is nothing more satisfying than when the person who was your sworn enemy turns to become your greatest supporter. In fact, Judaism teaches that while it is a victory to defeat your enemy in battle, a far greater victory is to turn your enemy to become your friend and supporter. That's very much what happened with Yaakov and his brother Esav. There was a time when Esav wanted to kill Yaakov, and at the end of the story, Esav turned around and gave him a huge embrace, offered him to travel together, and were told that in the future, Esav will in fact, or at least the descendants of Esav, will become great supporters of the descendants of Yaakov. We see a similar thing with King David when his son Absalom tried to launch a revolution against King David's rulership and wanted to establish himself as king. So King David says in Tehillim, Pada b'sholom nafshi, Hashem redeemed my soul in peace. In other words, he didn't have to go to war with his own son. And the commentaries tell us in the Talmud that what he meant by Hashem redeemed me in peace is that even the supporters of Afshalom eventually turned around and prayed for the success of David. Now the ultimate turnaround of enemy to friend will happen when Moshiach comes. That's the goal of Moshiach, not to vanquish the world, not to conquer the world, but to transform the world and all the negativity within it to become supportive of and connected to and in line with what Hashem wants for this world. And that's why it's really interesting when you look in the Rambam's description of Moshiach and how we know in the Torah that there is such a concept as Moshiach, you'll see that one of the things the Rambam says is, look at Bilam. Bilam was a terrible anti-Semite. Bilam was a person who was hired with the express job of cursing the Jewish nation while they were still in the desert before they went into Israel. And Bilam came armed and ready and his intention was malicious. But when he actually landed up opening his mouth, all that came out was blessings for the Jewish people. And when he was finished with the blessings, then he began to predict what would happen in the future to our enemies, particularly the Moabite nation, the people who had hired him to get involved in cursing the Jews in the first place. And the only place in the five books of the Torah that we have clear prophecies about Mashiach is in the wording of Bilam's prophecies of the future. Now that's incredible for a number of reasons. First of all, because Bilam was hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab. Moab is a sworn enemy of the Jewish people on the one hand, and on the other hand, Balak's own descendants would eventually become the lineage of Mashiach, Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David, from whose lineage Mashiach comes, is a descendant of Balak. So it's this incredible turnaround. And that's how the Torah tells us the story. The only place in the entire Torah that speaks openly about a Mashiach who's described as this 
great staff of rulership that will rise from the house of David and the star that will shoot out from Israel, the only place that it's described is specifically in the teachings of Bilam, the sworn enemy of the Jewish people, the one who the Talmud says is the only prophet in the Gentile world to ever rival Moses in prophecy simply so that there could always be a balance in the world, that whatever exists in holiness should have its nemesis in the unholy world. So the fact that that's where we hear about Mashiach in the Torah solidifies for us exactly what Mashiach is about, not to conquer the world, not to get rid of our enemies. Mashiach's mandate is to turn the world around, to open people's eyes, to create an awareness and a revelation that will cause the revolution of the whole world coming together to pray to the same God, to see the value of the Jewish people, and to support the morals and ethics that the Torah teaches. Just wish sometimes that life would be a little bit easier, that things would settle down, that you wouldn't have to have the stresses and distractions that seem to haunt us from pretty much every direction. The parasha that we're going to read this Shabbos is called Vayeshev, which means, and he settled. It refers to our forefather Yaakov, who went through quite a fair amount of trouble in his life. He had a brother who wanted to kill him. He had to run away from home as a result, landed up living with his uncle and subsequently father-in-law Lavan was a highly dishonest man and gave him a lot of trouble. He spent many years working for his father-in-law, all of the time having to deal with the fluctuations in the agreement, the financial agreement that they had. Eventually he emerges with a healthy family, good children, a fair amount of wealth and he goes back home to his original place, the land of Canaan, to his father's house and the parish of this week says Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov settles down. I mean, he's an older man already at this point in time, and he's ready to settle down. He's had the Tzoros in his life, and he believes at this point in time that, you know, he's done his time, and now it's okay for him to catch his breath. Says the Torah, Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov settles down in the land of his forefathers. Straight after that, it goes into the story of Joseph, and very soon after that, the fact that Joseph is sold into slavery and Yaakov suddenly has 20 years of extreme heartache until he's reunited with his son. Rashi, quoting the Midrash, says that we learn something from this. Yaakov had an intention. He wanted to be able to sit, to dwell, to live in peace, literally put his feet up, focus completely on his spiritual development. And Hashem pretty much said, that's not going to happen. And just when he thought he was going to settle down, that's when Hashem sent him a whole new challenge in his life, which was the loss in his mind, the loss of his son, Yosef, and all the stress and anxiety that went with that. And then the Midrash goes a step further and says, from here we learn that generally speaking, when tzaddikim, when righteous individuals wish to live in peace, Hashem always gives them something that's going to challenge them and that's going to make their life uncomfortable. And you have to wonder why. Why is that? Firstly, why is it that Tzadikim would want to live in peace? Surely, um, as the Talmud indicates, they really care about the next world and that's where they'll have the opportunity to sit in peace. That's where their soul will be undisturbed and will be completely focused on spirituality. 
So why is it that a tzaddik wants to, in this world, live in peace? Not like you and I, who just want to have it easier. The tzaddik's motivation is, look, if I don't have distractions, and if I don't have stress, and if I'm not anxious, then I'm in a better position to focus, and to be able to study Torah without disturbance, and to be able to develop myself spiritually, and surely that is what Hashem wants. And we all really have that sense. Surely what Hashem wants from us is to be able to focus, and to develop our spirituality, and that would be a great thing. But what this story of Yaakov shows us is that it doesn't necessarily work that way and we don't necessarily always grow simply from the smooth sailing in life. Hashem says, look, you want, you Yaakov, you want to be able to lay shape Bashalva, to settle down into a great, healthy, spiritual rhythm. Let me tell you how this is going to happen. You're going to have a new challenge in your life. It's going to challenge you in a way that you had never expected. But believe it or not, that itself is going to be the cause of the greatest spiritual development for you. So it's not going to be that as you expected. And when life is easy, that's when you'll catapult to the highest spiritual dimensions. It's actually when life throws you challenges that's when you will find resources within yourself to be able to connect to me in a way that you had not necessarily anticipated.